You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. On this weekend's show, we take a trip inside Vaughn's new 12,000-square-foot sportsplex. If you're a parent and worried about what your children are consuming online, Media Smarts has resources to help. But we begin with stories from the medical pages. Earlier this week, Riverdale and 90210 actor Luke Perry died of a stroke. He was only 52. Just how common are strokes in those under 55? And what happens to the body? Dr. Patrice Lindsay from the Heart and Stroke Foundation explains. A stroke is caused by either a small blood clot that breaks off and blocks one of the vessels in your brain or one of the vessels in your brain becomes weakened and breaks and causes a bleed. When either of those happen, that part of the brain um, is compromised. The common signs that we see are usually one-sided, and we use the acronym at Heart and Stroke, we use the acronym FAST. So F stands for face. If you look at someone's face, is one side drooping. Arm, if you ask someone to lift both their arms, does one not move at all or start drifting down? Or speech, someone's speech sounds all garbly, like they have a muscle of marbles, or it's, it sounds clear, but it's very incomprehensible, and it seems like it's just gibberish coming out. Any of those symptoms are more likely to be caused by a stroke than any other medical condition. And why are some strokes more catastrophic than others? Some are fatal, and some, some people can recover from strokes. How does that happen? It depends on a couple of things. One, how big is the clot, and how much of where did it lodge? the more of the brain that is blocked from getting blood and nutrients, because that's what happens is when there's that blockage or the break, all of the cells beyond that don't get properly fed or don't get the, the oxygen nutrients. They die at 1.9 million um, neurons a minute. So that's a lot. Depending on where that clot happened and how big it is and how much of the brain is compromised, that will determine how bad that stroke is. So it's both location and size. I see. What are the risk factors for stroke? So there are several. There's some that are more lifestyle behavioral, smoking, um, diet. You know, the new Canada's Food Guide came out, really promoting more home cooking and fresh fruits and vegetables. Exercise is probably one of the biggest lifestyle ones. If you can just get out there and do 15 minutes of exercise every day, it really does make a difference. Um, other medical risk factors are high blood pressures are we call the silent killer. It's the single most... Um, important risk factor in stroke. People don't get their blood pressure checked. They don't know if they have high blood pressure until something like this happens. So regularly getting your blood pressure checked, controlling diabetes if you have it. And it can be prevented then is what you're saying? We can prevent a lot of the stroke and the heart disease that we see by these lifestyle factors. It's not going to prevent everybody's. Some of these are just, you know, flukes in nature, but we can do a lot to reduce the number of strokes by exercise, blood pressure management, healthy eating. It, it sounds like a cliche, but it really does make a difference. And how much has to do with family history? Some. There is some component of, of being at risk of a stroke that is family history. We're learning more about that now as 
you know, genetic science evolves and being able to um, map DNA for people, we're starting to see more of those connections, but they're not the only thing. They do put you at increased risk, and if you know that, then you should be actually taking extra cautions. And how common is a stroke for those under 55 years of age? We're starting to see an increase in that age group. So right now it's about 20% of all the strokes we see, which is a lot. It's gone up over the years. Um, it used to be about 10%. Now we're, we're climbing under 65, and we're very concerned about that younger group. And is it more prevalent in men or women? We're, we don't see a difference in, the, in people having the strokes. What we see is women actually a stroke affects them much um, harder. They tend to not do as well. They tend to be older when they have their stroke and therefore more fragile to begin with and more compromised. So women, more women die of stroke than men. And where can listeners get more information? They can go to heartandstroke.ca. We have all kinds of information around recognizing the signs, the importance of calling 911 and, you know, places you can start to, to look at your lifestyle. We have a risk factor assessment tool they can use. Dr. Lindsay, thank you for joining us on the feed. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. And now that we have the facts about strokes, we turn our attention to a personal story. Our colleague here at the radio station, Rick Goodell, he's also our web manager, is a stroke survivor. And he joins me now in studio with what happened to him. Rick, first, thank you for being so open and honest and willing to talk to us about this. Oh, you're very welcome, Tina. Um, I think it's really important that people understand um, that even when you think you're healthy, there are opportunities or there are challenges that you're going to experience that uh, will put you in, in, you know, medical harm. So what happened to you? You know, I, I was considering myself pretty healthy at the time, and uh, I just happened to be down in the kitchen uh, getting breakfast ready with my, for my wife. I felt this rush of tension that just came up through my neck and held my head in place, and I felt like I was going underwater. You know, it's, it's something that's hard to describe, um, but if anybody's ever submerged their head under, you know, in a pool, um, that was the sensation that I had. I didn't think anything of it. And it's remarkable to me, just that point that you remember that feeling and what it was like for you, that's, that's quite remarkable. And I'm sorry to interrupt. Please oh, go ahead. It is something you will never forget if you ever experience it, and I hope none of our listeners do. I didn't think anything of it. I packed up our lunch, um, got into uh, the car as my wife was driving me down to the bus, bus uh, stop. I started to get a, a, a headache. And I said to my wife, I said, I'm starting to get a headache. You know, I might go to work and then I might come home early. So off I went. I got on my bus, went to work. Uh, the headache was getting uh, a little bit more severe. Uh, so I decided to take two aspirin. Uh, note, don't take two aspirin hmm. uh, when you have a headache like that because uh, apparently that was the worst possible thing I could have done. The headache continued for the next hour, so much so that I, I contacted my wife again and said, you know, this headache isn't getting any better. She said, well, call an ambulance and get yourself to the hospital. I didn't pay attention and uh, went in the cab, went uh, to the hospital, barely able to keep myself uh, alert. I was ready to pass out because of the pain. Got myself into the emergency uh, area for signing in um, and practically collapsed. Uh, they took me in. Uh, the doctor thought, hey, this must be a migraine. Um, 
by that time, he put me into a, an enclosed room, a dark room, because I was very light sensitive at that point, which is indicative of, you know, the subarachnoid hemorrhage that I ended up having. Okay. Um, but as he was going through, he just felt that I was uh, just suffering a, a massive migraine. So he grabbed hold of both sides of my head, gave my head a good shake, and said, you know, this is how we diagnose whether it's a migraine. They then proceeded to do uh, a CAT scan and found out that, yeah, it was a sub subarachnoid hemorrhage. Luckily, Which is a stroke. It is a stroke. It is considered a stroke. And ironically, this type of stroke um, is mostly affecting people that have been in um, car accidents or motorcycle accidents. Had some uh, kind of trauma. Trauma to the head. It can happen spontaneously, uh, which in my case is exactly what happened. But um, when they were running through the tests, luckily I went to a hospital that had a neurologist uh, on staff. And they uh, immediately diagnosed what it was, transferred me to Toronto Western Hospital, and uh, I was taken care of very well there. And so how did they treat you? Um, there's a couple of ways that they treated me. Um, they did a... a I don't know the exact terminology, but they send a small wire um, through an artery up to my brain. Right. And um, they they get to where the localized site is so they can understand exactly what it is. Um, I was barely conscious at the time. Uh, at that point, they said, okay, we need to keep him under uh, observation for the next couple of days. So they sent me into the ICU. Um the, the biggest challenge is vertigo, um, so I was constantly vomiting, uh, barely able to recognize where I was or what I was doing. Um, and then, you know, by just getting the rest that I needed, um, I was allowed to stay home. Um, I obviously had to stay home for quite a while. Um, the biggest challenge for me after that was cognitive. Uh, I was lucky in that I didn't have any of the, trip, the typical uh, outward signs that a stroke victim has and that's you know the drooping face the um, sometimes paralysis right that's right the paralysis and a subarachnoid hemorrhage survival rate is about 40 percent um yikes and that that's within the first 48 hours and then after that very few survivors uh have a regular lifestyle after that um i'm lucky i'm one of the very small percentages that I'm unaffected now, and in fact, the likelihood of me getting a subarachnoid hemorrhage again is the same as you or mm -hmm. any of our listeners. Did you have any symptoms before? No, there were no symptoms whatsoever before that, um, and that's why it, it just assumed to me that it was just a headache. Um, so I, you were overall fairly healthy. You're a non-smoker? I'm a non-smoker. Um, one of the other uh, things with subarachnoid hemorrhage victims is... Uh, excessive cocaine use, which no, no. that wasn't me either. Um, so it always, it did strike me as funny when they diagnosed me as that. Um, they, the first thing they did say was, did your wife hit you over the head? <laughs> which could happen, but no, it didn't happen in this case. That's right. And how old were you at the time when this first happened to you? It was a couple of weeks after my 50th birthday. Yikes. So a fairly young man. Yeah. Fairly healthy, Fairly right? healthy. I was running and swimming at the time. Um, you know, I was getting all the cardio I needed, um, but obviously that wasn't enough, and, and I didn't have any other warning signs. So let's go back to your recovery. You were in hospital for how long? I was in hospital for three days. 
Okay, so your body was allowed to um, recover yes. uh, a little bit, at least at that stage of the game. And then you're sent home. What happens when you're sent home? What kind of support, what kind of physical therapy did you have? Well, the the biggest problem that I had after um, being in the hospital was I would get cramping, uh, cramping in my legs, cramping in my lower back. Um, so there were exercises that I was given. Um, they sent a, um, a worker over to make sure that I had all the tools I was going to need, whether it was going to be a walker or any type of assistance that you know could be offered to my wife um, and to my family to make sure that you know I was able to recover. Uh, going to the family doctor on a regular basis to see um, if everything was okay. Uh, one of the challenges, again, going home is is my attention span wasn't there. So if somebody was talking to me, um, I wouldn't really register what they were saying, and I'd get very tired. Um, so this is this is a brain injury, uh, which is unfortunately it, it's going to affect the way that we operate for at least until it recovers. Um, so. Vomiting again was was one of the big things for me because vertigo was was a big challenge, and that was something that was missed at the hospital. Uh, so when I went to see my family doctor, uh, he was very quick to diagnose that that's what it was. Got me on some anti vertigo drugs, and then I was able to at least carry on a conversation right. uh, without having to to rush to um, recover. And what about emotional support? Because at fifty, you're not thinking stroke, right? And so when this happens to you and it changes your life in so many ways and those around you. I like to consider myself the strong one in the family and uh, to see my wife and my two daughters and how they were affected by me not being able to, to be me um, was something that was scary. Um, but also, I wasn't in a position mentally to almost care. Um, it, it wasn't until after I recovered that I realized how much they did for me uh, to help me and get me healthy again. And how long did it take to get you back to, I, I don't like to use the word normal in any circumstance, but how to get you back to a point where you felt like more of yourself? I probably took about, um, I would say, four to six months before I felt healthy. I felt comfortable that I could do whatever I wanted to do and there wasn't going to be any repercussions. Um, I was away from my workplace for eight months, um, again, doctor's orders, because the job that I did required me to be alert, be cognitive, uh, be able to do extended periods of calculations and things like that, uh, which I just wasn't up to. Um, I liked to look at TV. Um, but again, that wasn't even watching television. That was just looking at it uh, because there wasn't a lot going into the brain to process. So, Rick, you, you said yourself, you're, you feel like you're one of the lucky ones. You're a survivor of stroke. What do you say to those out there who are listening who are in those early days right now, just post-stroke and into that recovery period? What do you want to say to them? The only thing I can say is I understand how challenging it can be. Um, I am blessed. I'm very lucky to have been one that has recovered without any uh, long-term effects. Um, rely on your family. Rely on your friends. Rely on your medical professionals. They do know what they're talking about. Um, you may not see it, 
but they do, and, and they'll be able to help you through it. Rick, thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Tina. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. We'll stay on the medical beat, but turn our attention now to cancer. Earlier this week, Canadian and Jeopardy host Alex Trebek was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. To tell us a bit more about this type of cancer is Massey Nematolahi, and she is a certified oncology nurse at William Osler Health in Brampton. Massey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can we start with what is pancreatic cancer? Uh, Well, pancreatic cancer is one of those cancers that you're not very happy about that, unfortunately. Uh, But basically, it uh, begins in the tissue of uh, the pancreas, which is an organ uh, behind the lower part of the stomach. And uh, typically, pancreatic cancer um, spreads rapidly to the nearby organs, and that is why it is... uh, um, hard to detect this cancer at the early stage. Usually the patients are diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer and then that is the time that we will find out, okay, now what we have to do and which other organs are um, being affected and then jump into that. So I think you've already answered this, but I I was going to ask you, how is it diagnosed? But you said that it's often difficult to catch it in the early stages. It is, unfortunately. So uh, some of these patients usually uh, they may have like some pain in the upper abdomen or loss of appetite and um, fatigue, but these are not something that as a normal person you you are having a very busy life, very active, and then you may not just catch it up as, okay, that might be pancreatic cancer, right? But one of the, uh, one of the things that is... Uh, like a flag for, can be a flag for the patients is a new onset of diabetes. So if they do not have any uh, history of diabetes and then they have these symptoms plus a new onset of diabetes, that is when they have to look onto that very urgently and then make sure that they will seek attention for that. And then um, the other thing is like yellowing of the skin um, or uh, we call it jaundice. Uh, that, that is not early stage, though, so the patients to get to that point, they definitely have to seek medical attention. You also mentioned that the diagnosis often comes after the disease has metastasized or spread. Uh, what happens at that stage of the game, and often what stage is the diagnosis? Uh, so the stage four, when we stage uh, uh, cancers like pancreas, which is a solid tumor, cancer, um, it is usually the stage, and stage four is when, uh, unfortunately, it has spread. So when pancreatic cancer occurs is when the, the cells in the pancreas develop mutations, and then these mutations continue to grow without being able to control them, and then, um, and then this accumulation of these cells, will, because they are just uh, make, growing uncontrollably, and then they can form the tumor, and then but because the symptoms cannot be uh, diagnosed as pancreatic cancer, as you mentioned, like having like pain in the in the stomach here and there, being tired, or some uh, you know weight loss. We have patients they come and say, oh, I was in a diet, I I really wanted to lose weight, so they 
they don't pay attention to that weight loss. So what I really want to on here is make sure that any changes in your body, patients may know that better than anybody else. Anything that changes that is not normal to you and you think that uh, it's better to seek medical attention, just do not delay that. So don't so hesitate. Exactly. It's, it's so worth it to seek medical attention earlier than later because at early stages, there are so many options that we can help our patients with pancreatic cancer. And before we talk about treatments that are available, is it seen more in men or women? Is there a certain age group that is more susceptible to pancreatic cancer? Um, well, first of all, uh, of course, number one, I, I, I just say again, any family history of, uh, um, of pancreatic cancer, um, any history of obesity and uh, history of um, uh, smoking, people usually at older age um, will be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, but um, most of the patients are that those that are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer are around 65 or older, and we know that the combination of smoking, long-standing diabetes, um, or a poor diet, they are all uh, increases the risk of pancreatic cancer beyond the risk of any of these factors alone. So these are things that we have to watch for. And what treatments are available? Uh, thankfully, we are in the era in the cancer treatment that there are so many great treatments out there, and we are so thankful with all this uh, research and um, drug development and clinical trials that have improved the treatment for that. So there are different treatment options. One would be the surgery. That is, uh, it's a very specific surgery, we call it vital procedure, and then and that operation, um, it is just an operation, so the, the tumor will be removed with some uh, very specific tech, technical uh, procedures. And then the other treatment option would be chemotherapy, and chemotherapy, we all know that, has its own uh, side effects also. But in some cases, we can combine chemotherapy with uh, radiation therapy, we call it chemoradiation, and um, then this is typically used for the treat of the cancer that are spread beyond the pancreas, and um, the other treatment is just radiation therapy to uh, give the high energy beams of x-rays to the, uh, to the patient to destroy the cancer cells, and the most promising treatment now, we have lots of clinical trials that are happening right now um, that are either systemic therapy or targeted therapy um, that are amazing and one of the um, new kid in the block, you may have heard that term, is immunotherapy and there are clinical trials on immunotherapy to be able to boost the patient's own immune system to be able to fight with the cancer. So there are definitely hope out there, and I always tell to my patients that you should have a positive mind which is connected to your body, and that will be very helpful in terms of being able to fight with this disease. And in terms of fighting this disease, what is the survival rate? So far, we do not have a high survival rate with pancreatic cancer, but again, it depends at what stage it has been diagnosed, but... uh, I'm very hopeful with all these new treatment options 
clinical trials, immunotherapy, we are improving the survival rate so our patients can have a, not only just a better quality of life, but also living longer. Massey, thank you for joining us on the feed, and thank you for the work that you do. I'm sure your patients and their families appreciate all that you do for them. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Our next stop takes us to Media Smarts and help for parents to keep their kids safe online. Christy Laverty with a few tips. We're joined now by Thierry Plant from Mediasmarts.ca. He is a media education specialist. Why we wanted to chat today is there have been a number of stories that have popped up in the news. And, you know, I'm torn a little bit about talking about the specific ones because, you know, part of that almost continues the... um you know, the sort of the fear, but there's been a number yeah. of stories regarding some issues with content online, d- particularly directed at children that could yeah. uh, cause some concerns and uh, for children's safety. So maybe what we could do is talk a little bit about some things that parents and children can do to protect themselves when they are yeah. online. Yeah, well, the first thing to realize about this particular case, but in, in most cases, in any uh, in any event, is that in this particular case, it's a hoax, and um, this can actually serve as a very good teachable moment for parents um, to uh, spend the time with their children and go uh, through, especially if their children uh, are concerned about this particular one or any other one. Um, and, and uh, they bring it up, then it's, it's a good opportunity to go through it and essentially take it apart and uh, at the same time teach your kids um, some very good uh, detective skills online, authentication skills, but also some pretty good kind of critical thinking about uh, the nature of um, viral, uh, I guess we're calling them hoaxes uh, or viral content online, but it's also a great opportunity uh, to also discuss, um, especially with the older children, discuss ethical responsibilities online. Part of why uh, we're hearing about this is because the um, that particular hoax is spreading through social networks. And it's spreading because, uh, in part, people are not really asking themselves uh, really good questions when it comes time to decide to talk about this or not with uh, their network. And so one particular ethical dimension uh, to talk about with children at this point is to talk about, um, you know, the the kind of thought process they should have uh, before they choose to send this kind of viral content and hopes to uh, everybody they know, basically. Yeah, and that's really what's so interesting and why I kind of hesitate to even give it an, a name um, because yeah. there's going to be another hoax maybe even if a few months. These kind of things exactly. tend to, to crop up occasionally and, like you say, they become viral. And I think, you know, part of the discussion um, is to, to talk about that critical thinking part and to think about whether it's something that should be reshared. And yeah. You know, dialogue is so important between parents and children. You know, the Internet's a great thing, but you shouldn't just, you know, open the door to it 
to children and let them make, you know, sort of their own decisions online without giving them the tools to make mm-hmm. decisions. Prevention uh, is the key uh, in all of this. Uh, this uh, illustrates really well the uh, the importance for parents to be um, present in their children's online lives. It's even more so important for uh, younger children, um, especially children, and we know from our own data that children are going online at a younger and younger age, uh, especially children under the age of seven who might still have some trouble uh, discerning uh, fact from fiction, what's real and what's make-believe, um, and also have some difficulty um, reporting things that they see if they are going online on their own. There's a responsibility here for parents to uh, be generally aware and be generally present and be interested also in what your children are interested when they are online. Now, I'll grant you, uh, you know, I'll, I'll grant you that it's a little bit more challenging to do with teenagers and certainly the part of uh, raising teenagers means uh, helping them develop a sense of um, autonomy online, um, but uh, there are a number of strategies uh, that parents can use even with teenagers to stay generally aware of uh, what's happening or at least having an open line of communication with their uh, teenagers um, so that uh, when something does happen, and as you say, uh, inevitably something else will pop up, this time it's viral content, but maybe some other time there will be uh, you know, a conflict online, it'll be, uh, you know, a, a video um, to, or a television show that's making the rounds. That's maybe a little bit disturbing for teenagers. So having that open line of communication uh, where teenagers feel like they can safely come and talk to you as a parent uh, and that you won't uh, automatically take away uh, the tool that they uh, use the most probably during the day um, is is a great way to uh, mitigate the effects of that kind of content online. And you bring up an interesting point because I think for a lot of parents who um, maybe themselves aren't, wouldn't necessarily consider themselves internet, social media savvy, mm-hmm. the first thing that they think of is, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting it off. You know, no iPad, no Fortnite, no no access yeah. to Internet. And that might not necessarily be the right choice, um, given that kids are so connected to yeah. the Internet. And that's a real lifeline for some kids with their, their particular community. So, you know, what are some strategies maybe, um, you know, parents can use other than that full shutdown of access? Well, it always depends uh, on uh, the child, obviously. So there are some cases where it is necessary to uh, fully cut access until some other intervention can be done. Some uh, children can be particularly vulnerable online, especially those that are already uh, vulnerable uh, offline. Those that are experiencing uh, trauma or violence offline have more of a tendency to uh, experience uh, similar things online or at least have have behavior that invite similar situations. But in, in most cases, it's beyond simply having that relationship of trust. Um, it, it's being uh, 
present when uh, the consume media is one uh, particular strategy. It's to consume media together and look for those opportunities to ask really good questions and uh, get them to think critically about what they're seeing. Um, one trick there is to make uh, sure not to um, have a, some sort of value judgment on the content that they like. I think a lot of parents, for example, might have a, uh, some difficulty understanding why uh, you know, watching other people play video games on YouTube <laughs> is so popular. Yeah. But, um, it, you know, a sure way to kind of shut down the conversation is to kind of make a value judgment about that. So it's better to kind of stay interested and try to keep that line of communication open. Uh, if it if it ends up being particularly concerning, if there are some warning signs that maybe uh, something else is going on, another strategy um, that may be uh, useful because it's we're always trying to balance, uh, on one hand, helping our children build. Uh, resilience online. They have to be exposed in a very controlled way to some content and some risk in order to build a certain resilience, as long as we're there to contextualize and to guide um, and at the same time giving a certain amount of independence, but also assuming our role uh, of parents where we have a a moral and legal responsibility to ensure their welfare. Uh, One particular trick that that, uh, is... um, Pretty effective with especially older children and teenagers uh, is to have a uh, a password piggy bank where um, you ask your teenagers to write down the passwords to their accounts uh, on the slips of paper. You put it in this piggy bank, and there then as a parent you say, "Well, I promise not to go." Look in there, uh, you know, uh, unless it's a last resort, and we, you know, I suspect that there's something uh, really um, uh, horrible going on, and so that way you you're balancing at this time of year their need for uh, independence and your responsibility to kind of keep an eye on uh, or be able to keep an eye on what's happening. So that would be another trick to use. That's a great tip. Now, one of the things, um, you know, there's so many resources online for parents. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, your organization and what Media Smarts is and the kind of resources that people can find uh, at your site. Well, Media Smarts is a uh, Canadian nonprofit organization. We were created initially in the 90s specifically to be a resource center and a research center for parents and teachers, for anybody who uh, is responsible for a child, um, to create resources to help them uh, talk about and deal with uh, any kind of issues with children and media. So at the time it was more uh, about violence in the media, but now obviously as uh, children uh, are using more and more digital media, then we're encountering a whole new set of uh, potential uh, issues, but also potential opportunities. So our resources uh, are all free. They're uh, in English and in French. And uh, so we have lesson plans. We have uh, tip sheets, guides, some educational games uh, on uh, quite a large variety of topics. And we always try to, um, first of all, ground uh, all our tips and advice on uh, research on the real life 
and ex- of children online, Canadian children in particular, um, and always try to also uh, highlight the wonderful, uh, and I think you've mentioned this uh, earlier on, but the wonderful opportunities that uh, digital technologies also afford us and make sure that they know how to seize those as well as minimize uh, the risks. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things as we sort of wrap this up is is that, you know, for for a lot of these cases, when there are some viral hoaxes or issues and concerns, you know, as parents, we, you know, tend to uh, get really concerned and think, oh, the Internet's a bad place. Um, mm-hmm. And it isn't necessarily that black or white, there are a lot of opportunities for children to connect and to really, um, you know, advance their knowledge and um, skills and technology. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, not, it's not a bad place. No, no, it's knowing how to, it's knowing how to balance uh, the risks and the opportunities. Uh, of course, online offers children now uh, an amazing array of possibilities from, from learning, uh, from connecting and collaborating, for creating in terms of traditional media literacy, which is something that we're interested in. Uh, digital technology now is great because it really uh, enables children to um, create all sorts of media content that was very difficult to uh, create and, and especially distribute before. And so really understand uh, how um, the media works in general, which in turn uh, really helps them uh, be more resistant to and, more, and have a more critical eye towards uh, the rest of media content that they see and once they've had an opportunity to create some. So there's, there's uh, wonderful opportunities, uh, lots of uh, teachable moments and education uh, online, and it's just a question of, of uh, being there and, and being the guide and the mentor, and especially in this age of uh, using smartphones, uh, perhaps a little excessively, being a good uh, a role model in terms, in terms of uh, a use. That's fantastic. So much great information. And uh, as we close out the interview, remind everybody what's the, the website and where they can go online. So uh, MediaSmart is, uh, our website is MediaSmart.ca, all uh, MediaSmarts with a little S at the end. And uh, all our resources are available on, uh, on the website. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate this. Some fantastic information and tips for parents in what can be a uh, concerning time, but doesn't necessarily have to be. So thank you so much. My pleasure. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including a local film producer. Galit Solomon makes the introductions. Marshall, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. And, and you know, it's, it's always nice to be able to bring a story back to the region, because at 105.9, that's what we do. We, we cover the region of, uh, of York, New York Region, right? So, um I wanted to to bring you in because I think that you have such a great local story, but but it goes beyond local as well. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what it is that you do. 
Well, I've totally been a York boy for a York region boy my entire life. I grew up in Thornhill. I went to Thornley Secondary School, and I uh, eventually got into television. So, I, and my roots are still in York region. I still live here, but I, I work everywhere, everywhere, and, and produce just a variety of television. But it's funny because I've always been grounded in York region, raised my kids here as well. Right. And let's dive into some of those projects that you've worked on. You're a producer, like you said, and you've worked on some very exciting projects over the years. There's a a special one that's coming up. We'll get to that in just a moment. But tell us about your background and what it is that you do in television production. What I do in television is, is, is I'm a showrunner, which basically means that I run a show, I produce a show, and if I'm not producing a show, I'm directing. So some of the fun things that I've done over the years is I've... um, I produced a Tori and Dean show for them. I've done, uh, produced Colin and Justin shows. I've directed two seasons of Unusually Thick with Alan Thick. I've produced The Bride to Beverly Hills for TLC. So I've got food shows, reno shows, celebrity shows, a lot of shows to lead. Right. And what is it like to work with some of these celebrities? You mentioned uh, Alan Thick and, and of course, uh, Dean from Tori and Dean is Canadian as well. Yes. What is that experience like working with some of these celebrities? Because, you know, many of us watch them on TV or hear about them in the news or, you know, on some of these gossip columns. But what is it really like to work with them? Do you want the good or the bad or the ugly? What I, want like? <laughs> I want both. I want both. And, of course, you know, you know a little bit more of the bad than the good. <laughs> oh, you want all the gossip, huh? I, I think it's, it's – celebrities are, are – um, they're just people like us, but there's also an ego and a talent and a brand, and they are very sometimes adamant certain ways they want to be portrayed. So you have to really treat them with um, kid gloves and – you just got to be very gentle with them and build up your trust with them so that they trust what you're doing or what you're directing or what you're producing. They're going to look the best they can be on screen. Right. And is there one celebrity in particular that you've really enjoyed working with? And if so, who is it? Oh, gosh. Um, I can tell you who I didn't enjoy working with. Oh, sure. <laughs> we'll take that. <laughs> okay. The most difficult interview I've ever done is Larry David. Okay, tell what us about that. On television, on Curb Your Enthusiasm, is exactly who he is. So <laughs> let's just leave it at that. Um, I guess if I were to say some celebrities that were great, just recently, if you've watched Big Brother Celebrity, Kato Kalin right. is probably one of the most amazing people to ever work with. Um, the people, um, Colin and Justin are great talents. I think those that have the least amount of ego are the best to work with. Sure, sure. As is the case in life overall, right? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Let's talk about the very exciting project, that uh, the more recent one that you've worked on, uh, and it's a documentary from what I understand. Yes, my... My son and I, I'm going to plug my son. My son is an up-and-coming director and editor, and he's been nominated for editing for a show for Vice. Uh, We produced a brand-new full-length feature documentary called Viewer Direction Advised. And it's a film about um, my son and I on camera. It's our journey, two generations, father and son, and how television viewing has changed between our generations. My generation was appointment viewing. You were home on Tuesday night at 9 o'clock to watch Mm -hmm. a certain show. His generation is binge watching, watching where you want, what you want, when you want. 
And on the larger scale, is that a reflection of who we are as a culture and a society right now? Are we fragmented? Are we too individualized? And In I'm my sure. generation, the television was the hearth, and it was communal, and we all sat around it as a family or right. as friends. Yeah. And now I don't see my kids or that generation doing that anymore. Yeah, technology so has evolved in a in a very different way, hasn't it? Like it's just evolved yeah. to something that, you know, perhaps if you were growing up in the whatever, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s and so on, it was a very different habit than what we're seeing right now with the newer generation. And what did you discover? Right. What are some of those differences? And are there any similarities? I think that at the end of the day, the human race, us as people, we still want to be somewhat communal. We still enjoy going to theater or we go to a concert. We still want to be around other people when we're being entertained at the end of the day. I think that's always going to be there. At the same time, too, this new generation is looking at new ways to connect. They're connecting online. They're connecting in groups. They're connecting. You know, you can find people that you didn't even know existed that had similar interests with as you do. Um, and then we also look at connecting in time and space rather than in the physical. Right. The name of the documentary again? It's called Viewer Direction Advised, a play on viewer discretion advised, but viewer direction advised. And um, we ju actually just got back this weekend from New York City. We were at a film festival there and we got nominated for Best Documentary, which was pretty cool. Wonderful. Congratulations. Um, and we have great people in it. We have... Um, Norman Lear is in the documentary, the director of Big Bang Theory, director of Seinfeld, director of Golden Girls, creator of Dallas, the Brady Bunch is in it. So we've got some really cool people in it. Oh, that's fantastic. And there are a couple of other film festivals that you'll be at as well. Is that correct? Yeah, we're going... Um there's, we're going down to, we got into Utah, we were in Louisiana, we've got um, Florida, we're going in April, we're in the Toronto Jewish Film Festival oh, in May. So people in Toronto, if they want to come out to that, they gave us, I think they gave us a really good time slot, like a nice 8 p.m. viewing, and we'll oh. be there for Q&A as well. Right, that's great. And that's coming up in May, you said? May, I don't know the exact date, but it's the Toronto Jewish Film Festival, which is actually quite large, and I did not know that. Right. Excellent. Well, listen, congratulations. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining us and, uh, and all the best to you. For more information on the Jewish Film Festival in early May, go to tjff.com. Next on the feed, Jim Lang takes us to a brand new 12,000 square foot sports facility in Vaughan. There's something really cool taking place in York Region, in Vaughan specifically, at 1300 Ulna Street, Unit 3. It's called the Fat Sportsplex, a 12,000 square feet indoor facility located in Vaughan, dedicated to cricket, soccer, and bubble soccer, and table tennis. Pretty amazing, but the idea of indoor cricket training 12 months a year is pretty special. Thrilled to be speaking to the brand ambassador for Fat Sportsplex and a member of the Canadian National Cricket Team in a deeply accomplished international cricket star, Reza Raymond. Reza, how are you? I'm very good, Jim. Thank you. How are you? Oh, a pleasure, a pleasure. I think this is a fabulous idea. We know about the indoor golf bubbles and indoor soccer bubbles all across the GTA. How did this come to be to f figure out and put together indoor cricket facility? For sure, yeah. So cricket is, um, I mean, as a lot of folks know, it's an immensely growing sport in Canada. 
but one thing that's not on our side is the weather. Um, so cricket can be quite sensitive to the weather. Really, um, you, can, you can't really play in the rain. You can't play in the snow. You can't play in the cold. So we needed a place that could bring people together to play all year round. I'm thinking about the the facility itself and the, the ability for up-and-coming cricket stars to train 12 months a year, but also I'm thinking about leagues. When the weather is bad, they can go in and play their game inside. Am I correct? Exactly, exactly. Cricket's, uh, it's, it, because it's such a strategic sport and there's so many different aspects to the game, consistent practice, I mean, as with any sport, uh, consistent practice is extremely important, so that's something you need to do all year round. And given the fact that you're not able to get out on the field all year round, um, you know, spots like this really allow players to to refine their skills you know stay in tune with the game stay fit stay active um, all year round and prepare for the leagues that take place uh, during the summer a very short summer here well yeah unfortunately uh reza i mean just you personally you, you were born in zimbabwe uh, how old were yeah. you when you came to canada yeah so i was born in zimbabwe um spent most of my childhood there i uh, came over to canada did my university education here so i've been here since about 2004 now um so wow almost uh, 15 years or so so been a long time my cricket career started in zimbabwe um, i actually did have a short stint in pakistan for about three years in between coming to canada um, and then after representing pakistan under 19 as well came over to canada and then was lucky and fortunate enough to to represent the canadian national team and the reason i ask that is i mean i mean i totally agree the amount of dedication and hours and repetition to be a, a national team member for canada cricket is pretty incredible how old were you when you started playing the game and learning the craft that is cricket Oh, I was I was just a little child. My dad was was a huge, he was a very passionate uh, cricket uh, supporter. He loves cricket, never misses a game. You know, he'll stay up all night. And obviously, myself, my brother, um, we'd stay up with him, watch the game. We grew we grew an interest and a liking towards the game, and then uh, started to play it. And um, had a had a natural a natural, I guess, um, interest in the game. But also the fact that um, as you start to play more professionally, you realize obviously it's a lot more hard work, not so much on the fun side. You obviously have your fun days, but um, it's a, there's a lot of hard work. But I started very early, and I've continued throughout my life in some shape or form to play cricket. Thrilled to be speaking to Reza Raymond, the brand ambassador for Fat Sportsplex, a new indoor cricket facility in Vaughan and Ulna Street, and a member of the Canadian national cricket team. And, and I think about our demographics of what Canada is, and I think it's fantastic, the, the South Asian community and the massive test match against India and Pakistan at cricket, which almost eclipses Canada-Russia and hockey, and then the, the West Indian community and, and people from South Africa and Australia, I mean, and in the UK, there is, you start thinking about it, there is a lot of streams of different people in the population of Canada where cricket is their number one sport. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of people, you know, we, we obviously get caught up in, uh, you know, some of the sports that are uh, a majority in this part of the world. But cricket, uh, I mean, it's one of the most global sports in the world. And a lot of those countries that you mentioned, those are, those are the major playing countries. But if you actually look at some of the uh, lower divisions and maybe some of the lower ranked teams, um, you'll be surprised to see the names of the countries that are involved in cricket. How is the state of cricket in Canada? You remember the national team. How is the level of talent coming up across the country uh, joining the national team these days, Reza? For sure. So um, the Canadian national team had what we call one-day international status. Um, and this was just a couple of years ago. This was during the days that I played. And um, unfortunately, we we weren't able to maintain that status. But the interest and the level of uh, individuals, the number of individuals playing the game is growing every single day. And I can definitely see a path towards gain, gaining that international status once again. 
Um, and it obviously helps with things like funding, things like sponsorships and endorsements, but it's also it helps in terms of the, the younger generation coming through. So they, when they see, you know, cricket is an international sport and, you know, there's obviously a lot of good tours that take place and countries come to visit Canada. Uh, it opens up doors and opportunities for players to play in a lot of these other leagues that are popping up in different countries around the world. Well, I had an opportunity with my brother-in-law. I was visiting him in Europe, and we were watching the India Premier League, the pro cricket, and mm-hmm. I was absolutely blown away at the production and the amount of people. It was huge. Uh, I mean, India has really it's taken cricket to another level. So the Indian Premier League is um, it's a shortened version of the game. So typically uh, a cricket game will last about eight hours in a day, which is, Huge time commitment on the weekends. And um, the three-hour version, which is what we call the T20 version, so 20 overs, um, that's a three-hour version of the game. Uh, So that India has has popularized that and commercialized that. And given given cricketers and um, a lot of players, just another channel, another revenue channel and stream of um, income that they can generate through their skills uh, throughout the year when they're not representing their national teams. Well, as you use the hashtag on your social media, cricket is life, and it really is becoming a way of life for a lot of young athletes in the GTA, and the Fat Sportsplex is going to be a big way to take cricket to the next level in York Region over the next decade or so. Check it out, 1300 Ulna Street, Unit 3 in Vaughan. If people want to get more information about Fat Sportsplex, what can they do, Reza? Yeah, so we have our we have our Facebook group up and running. Uh, we we're getting the the website is in the works. We're gonna we're gonna actually establish an online booking system, so you'll you'll be able to see which lanes are available, how long you want to book it for. Uh, there's, an, there's an indoor soccer field in there as well. We have bubble soccer, virtual reality. Um, so everything is getting up and running. The cricket nets are already active. We have four bowling machines in place. You know, we have our phone numbers to to schedule and book online if you prefer, um, or you can even just walk in. You know, it's uh, it's in a very central location for everyone to come and check it out. So we encourage everyone. Uh, to come check it out. We'll, we'll have extended hours uh, to accommodate each and everyone interested in, in, in booking a spot in the facility. Oh, sorry. So you have a bowling machine like you would a pitching machine for baseball? Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, um, we actually have the first of its kind in North America. Um, and these bowling machines were all brought over from the home of cricket in England. Um, and, and a lot of them, uh, some of the issues that we saw were um, you need to typically come in pairs. So one individual will kind of pop the ball into the machine. Uh, the other individual will be batting. Uh, with these machines, you can actually automate all of that. So we have automatic feeders. Uh, there's a digital display, which kind of replicates the action of a bowler bowling the ball. Um, so the batter can set a timer for how, the different intervals in between balls, the speed of the ball, the length of the ball, the, the curve, or what we call the swing on the ball or the spin. Um, and we really want to automate this uh, and replicate what you would actually experience outside and all the different variations of what you'd experience outside, all in through one machine in one location at your convenience. That's pretty amazing. By the way, um, when I say fat sports flex, that's PH, not the other way. Yeah, with a PH. PH. <laughs> Raza Raymond, a real pleasure speaking to you and all the best with this uh, new venture. And I'm sure cricket's going to continue to grow in the GTA and in Canada. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Roger. You too. Take care. Take care. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.